The world has gone insane. Cosplayers rule the conventions. Gamers dominate the tabletop and the internet. Sci-fi subjugates the movies and fantasy rules the bookstore with an iron fist. Only one group can bring order to this unruly mob. A team of uber geeks, masters of the nerdly arts, trained for decades in the hobby shops and basements of the nation. Mobilized by the secret masters, they are the Department of Nerdly Affairs. Hello, operatives, and welcome to the Department of Nerdly Affairs. Is your homework done? The Department of Nerdly Affairs wants to know, because tonight we are talking about school, specifically education and popular culture. And I'm here tonight with my co-host, of course, Don. Oh, Captain, my captain. And our favorite high school teacher, Jack Ward. Oh, this is way too early. I'm still having nightmares about school starting in a couple of weeks. <laughs> You and me both, man. You and me both. So tonight we're going to be talking about, as I said, education in popular culture. And as usual, I think we should probably start off with Don. So Don, what's a good place to begin with education in popular culture? Uh, I think the big thing you have to think on is the role that education plays in society in the real world. Mm Mm-hmm. Because for a very, very long time in human history, education as we know it wasn't a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you go back to, like, say, the, the, the Middle Ages and even into like the Industrial Revolution and that, you did what your family did. You did what your father did. Because that was the only real training you tended to have right. was from your father. And then you just inherited his job. Mm-hmm. The exception would be higher education, which we'd think of as a university. Mm-hmm. Or, or maybe college. And that was open to very few people. It was generally expensive. You needed a good name to get into. And that was basically for the runners up in the family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That it, the first son would inherit everything. The second son would go become a priest, go to the seminary, because that was the only way you're going to make your fortune ripping off the flock. Yep. The third and later kids, you're, you're kind of on your own. You guys were just spares in case something happened to the first couple. Cause that's exactly. kind of how it worked. <laughs> no, that's, that's exactly right. Yeah. Yep. So, so they often did train you up because yeah, you were there as an understudy, basically just in case something yeah. happened to the old, your older brothers or sisters. Well, older brothers, let's be honest. I mean, you know, women didn't count really for much at this point. Um, mm-hmm. They were farm labor and baby producers for the most part, and that was kind of about it. Um, usually. Usually. Again, sad but true. I, it does depend, though. I mean, women did have some crafts, other things that they did that definitely contributed to the family farm, but it was expected that usually they were going to go off and marry someone else and become some yeah. some other group's work labor. Um, anyway, not the point. The point is, you're right, actually, that uh, up until the modern era, basically pretty much the Industrial Revolution education really wasn't that big a thing yeah and and then in the industrial revolution of course hits and suddenly we have all these people in factories and we need something for their kids to do during the day so they might as well get some learning in kind of uh even the industrial revolution doesn't change uh how education works a lot because it was still the idea that if you were like the second or later sons or even even um when 
mechanization and urbanization took off. Mm-hmm. You'd go to the city for your job, but you didn't need a lot of education to do that job. That's true. Uh, in, in big urban areas, you did see uh, what we would think of as education starting mm-hmm. to, to kick in. In a lot of places, you had like wandering teachers. Yes. Or you'd have like uh, everybody thinks of the old west, the like the old schoolhouse. Yep. But ma- attendance was was uh, it wasn't mandatory, and a lot of times it was random. Yeah, pretty much. Well, it wasn't expected or hoped, at least, that you would be literate. I mean, something we don't think about very often, but is was very important, is is that literacy was considered a big deal in the industrial revolution because thanks to the industrial revolution. And steam printing presses came into existence. Suddenly, uh, books and newspapers and magazines started proliferating and were popping up everywhere. <clears throat> and people wanted to be able to read those things. So yeah. even if you just had basic math, you still wanted to be able to read books or at least read at some level because you want to be able to access the social media and media of the day. And that required reading. Mm-hmm. So that yeah. was definitely part of it. And that was slowly becoming the uh, the way that information was transferred. You didn't have like by the time you get to like the fifteen hundreds, the wandering minstrel is a lot mm. less popular than they were. Yes, definitely. So you get hey, you're right, and that's you get the newspaper, you get the uh, mm-hmm. book. Books are a big thing. Uh, a lot of it isn't used for instructional purposes at that time. Like it's it's a lot of it's still entertainment. Well, for the masses, it generally is because the way they look at it is the masses don't really need um, instructional materials for the most part. I mean, but there are some exceptions. Like, for example, the original Farmer's Almanacs. Mm -hmm. The whole point of those was actually to teach you about things like crop rotation when that eventually came around. It took a while. Um, And tell you the other information that you would need to live on a farm and to make your life as a farmer better. Mm -hmm. And, of course, there is information like... um, for example, one of the very first magazines that was ever produced, I think it's considered the first or very close to the first, was basically a women's fashion magazine, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. I can't remember the name because the name is like in German and it's this long thing, but it basically translates to the costumes of the women in the uh, nether regions or something like that. Um <laughs> And by nether regions, I mean as in the Netherlands, not not oh. the parts of a woman's body, but the actual areas of the of the country. Mm-hmm. Rule Rule Thirty Four kicks in early. <laughs> <laughs> well, considering that they were these full giant corsets, I've seen images of these full giant corsets and these full like dresses, hoop dresses, and things like that. Yeah, they weren't exactly about the women's nether regions. Not in the modern sense, anyway. But, you know, if you're into hoop skirts, I guess that's the thing. I I don't know. I can see that harlot's ankles. (gasps) (laughs) Well, that's true. That's very true. And so, among the aristocracy, and among the the, no, uh, the upper levels of society, absolutely there was a big demand for knowledgeable reading or reading that incur- increased your knowledge and your ability. But for your average person, you're right. It was mostly just jokes and storytelling stuff and entertainment, basically. Um, even back then, they still wanted to know about the gossip that was happening all over the land and what was happening in the capital, that kind of thing. Yeah, that, and I think what happens at a certain point is being able to read becomes hip mm-hmm. oh definitely because if 
if you remember the earliest days of the printing press, mm -hmm. uh, the authorities, notably the church, frowned on it and frowned on people knowing how to read because they were afraid that if people could actually read the Bible, they'd come up with their own interpretations and then you wouldn't need the priests anymore. But that's what they were printing. Gutenberg himself, the first book he printed was the Bible. It, it was. And, and again, that pissed off and frightened authority, which... It's kind of funny when you think that the first, like, you know, mass media moral panic was over people reading the Bible. <laughs> You're right. So, I never thought of it that way, actually. Think of the children. That's right. You, you don't want them getting their hands on this stuff. Have you read what's in here? <laughs> exactly. It's full of filth and debauchery and incest. And, oh, my God, who would read this crap? You shouldn't be reading this. I should kidding? be That's, reading it It's too. the fun stuff. Exactly. That's yeah. how they get them attached. That's how they get them involved, right? Yeah, very true. very true. If it was boring, let's be honest, the Mormon Bible uh, is, is a pretty boring Bible to read, actually. It is not a lot to read there. I apologize to Mormons out there. But uh, the Bible is exciting because it's salacious. Uh, mm -hmm. even, even the, uh, well, even the Islamic uh, Quran, mm -hmm. if you ever read it, it's, it's not so many stories as, as it is rules. And it's right. not as much fun to read. The Bible has a lot of stuff going for it. There's a reason why there's been a lot of movies made out of it. And it's not just to entertain and not just to educate people. Oh, yeah. Most of the books of the Bible are basically collections of stories. And mm -hmm. that's one of the reasons why it succeeded, I would argue, is because Absolutely. people love stories. They're naturally drawn to them. And people will make you know references to stories and it becomes just part of popular culture very easily. Whereas books that are just rules, it's like, uh, nobody really wants to memorize those. It's, yeah. it's actually amazing that Islam got as far as it did in some ways, given that, For yeah, sure. you're right, it's mostly a collection of rules. Some books of the Bible are too. Um, and yeah, there are other books like uh, the Hindu uh, Vedas and the, yep. uh, is it the Upanishads, I think, or is that something yeah. else? Yeah. No, and, that's, that's yeah, Hindu. The Upanishad. Yeah, the Upanishads. But again, I think those are mostly rules. I have to check. Actually, the Vedas are. I'm not sure about the Upanishads. They might not be completely rules. But anyway, the point is, is that a lot of religious books do follow the rule approach. But I, I'm often surprised how well that works because most people don't like reading rules. As a teacher, I can right. tell you they don't like reading dry information. It just doesn't work for them. Everything mm -hmm. comes down to story. It really does. It does. Yeah, it does. So we're we're we are, as Lisa Cron said, wired for story. We are. Um, that's an author who wrote a book called Wired for Story. Um, and we we really are. We're story creatures. We conceptualize right. the world as story. We think of the world as story. And that's why, as a teacher, whenever you can weave story into your lessons, it actually makes a huge difference. Well, if you think of your, your favorite teachers growing up, they were ones that were great storytellers. Yes, they were. Absolutely. One way yeah. or another, for sure. And went out drinking with the students. Well, none, none of my <laughs> teachers did that. But, uh, well, you're, you know, you're great in, in, in the lawless <laughs> area of Windsor, I guess <laughs> they could... <laughs> There was a teacher that was up uh, in uh, in Owen Sound area, and I was I was well past the age. I was much longer in the tooth. I was in my twenties, mm -hmm. and uh, I was doing folk festivals and stuff like that. And this drama teacher was known to show up at the parties with the all the other students and uh, party with them in these mm -hmm. small communities. And sure enough, mm -hmm. at some point. This drama student also seemed to have a relationship with at least one or two of the the the, the males. Sorry, she was female. One of the ma uh, the males in the in the in the class, 
So uh, there's there's lines there <laughs> that yeah. that you you yeah. should very definitively draw <laughs> if you're showing up and drinking with the kids. There's problems there. You yeah, don't, don't see know. yourself as as uh, as the uh, the the, the uh, teacher as much as you see yourself as you know somebody who's on the same level as students, and that's an issue. It's, that's yeah. that's the, one of the biggest problems that I've found too. Is like I find mm. um, people that are unable to draw solid lines have mm. issues um with, yeah. with students in that respect mm. not necessarily to the furthest end but just issues with respect even i know mm, yeah. uh some students who would t- talk to a, a drama teacher and call him by his first name and had absolutely no respect for him yeah and it had literally to do with the culture that he developed to try to sort of create this friendly culture and let them call him by his first name and it didn't work it just mm. didn't work so mm. That's a bit of a tangent, um, but the I'm 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 interested because mm-hmm. teachers took this this model of very you know sort of lecturing that mm-hmm. went for 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 hundreds of years, yep, and then thousands. decided that they thousands of years perhaps, mm-hmm. yeah. I don't know. I mean, if you go back far enough, you you have much more storytelling and, than lecturing too, right? And mm-hmm. Questioning and answering in the in the Socratic or uh, Socratic method, method, yeah, Socratic yeah. method, yeah. Um, but what we find, and I think the first things that I found about this is really. In the 1920s, mm-hmm. uh, when we start seeing an actual division of teenagers, because we've got the whole, you know, jazz movement and stuff like that that's happening, and mm-hmm. and the and the new um, novelists of the time, the Fitz mm-hmm. the Fitzgeralds and the Hemingways and the Gertrude Steins and all these people that are providing the the path forward for modern literature, uh, then we're also you mix that with the explosion of radio as a mm-hmm. mass audience thing, the pulp magazines as mass audience, records as mass audience. Suddenly you've got um, a bunch of ways of, of getting media to students uh, that they're familiar with, probably mm-hmm. more so than their parents were. Mm-hmm. And they sort of felt like they were in on something that people weren't beforehand. And if you as a teacher could be in on it with them, you were hep daddy o. You were that's, you were better off than somebody who was uh, just sitting on a flagpole because flagpole <laughs> sitting was such a big thing back then, back in the twenties. Right. <laughs> no, seriously, that was like that was like the thing to do. It was the it was the Tide Pod challenge of the day. Yeah, <laughs> sitting yeah, on true. flagpoles. They probably so, killed just as many people too. Probably <laughs> did. So there's a bunch of there's. It's interesting how you almost have to have those mass those mass media elements mm-hmm. to draw in the pulp culture because without those you do have what Shakespeare and the Bible and the classic like Greek plays to draw from there's not a whole lot to draw from but then when they opened up that pop culture you know jar and <laughs> the the springy snakes of all those different things radio and magazines and and meat and comic books and all that stuff came flying out well suddenly, Teachers had new ways of getting those kids' attention. Mm-hmm. And this was the time you start seeing uh, high schoolers actually get involved in various different things. Like uh, there was uh, some like 4 million uh, high school students in- enrollments in the 20s in the States. And yeah. then you had um, they were the courses they were catered for broad range for students, mm-hmm. including vocational training and home economics. 
but the, the the fact was back in before that um you might work at the farm or you might work in your dad's shop or you might work in the mine so the idea that you could sort of you know set your own course uh wasn't really available before that yeah this was the first time you start seeing people started saying you know i think i might want to be a dentist yeah. Oh, oh okay. So, <laughs> but to get that person's you know attention, they mm. had to get them really loving school. And like you said beforehand, it was it was really an element of uh, and I'm not saying, you know, kids have always hated school, but there there are kids who have always loved school too. Mm. Uh more so because of this popular culture thing. My father and my mother both taught in one school, one room schoolhouse, you know. Really? Hmm. Yeah, they both had experience there. My dad a little more so than my mom, but both have had experience in the one-room schoolhouse. I said, Mom, how did you do it? Because yeah. you would have the entire class up to high school. So you'd mm-hmm. have like up to grade eight students in one room. Mm-hmm. And she said you had to have, like she was using like this this, like, this ditto machine, this little uh, mm-hmm. thing that you'd spin around. And she said you would set off some to do, and you'd have to deal with a bunch of textbooks. Like So they'd have readers. So mm-hmm. these kids would do their their thing in reading, and you might do a little science course with your grade twos, and then the kindergarten kids would be, you know, finger painting in the corner, and then the five and the sixes would be doing this. So yep. you'd have little twenty minute lessons all day long. Yep, no break. Crazy stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's doable when you consider that for the most part, what they did is they were almost self teaching. And the teacher yep. was mostly just there as a guide and then would have little lessons to make things clear about certain things and then say, okay, now we'll focus on these exercises there. But you mm-hmm. have to think about this, though. The kids have to be pretty motivated to do it because, again, oh. they have to be focused and they have to be disciplined. Otherwise, if they're all refusing to do – if they're refusing to learn or do their work, the teacher can't do anything. But they wouldn't do that, though, back in the day. Well, all you do is they, talk to the parents and those kids would be beaten. That's exactly those, right. Those parents knew very clearly if you don't smarten up, mm. you're never going to get out of this place that we're in right now. We depend on you to become the 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 smartest kid in the next generation. They this was when we really wanted our next generation to do better than they are. I mean, we often mm-hmm. say that we do want that for our kids, but that's kind of that's slackened off a whole lot unless you're looking at, at various different immigrant groups there's still massive expectations on various right. different immigrant families oftentimes mm-hmm. because they've come from those same kind of hardships for that same reason you know my mom was mm-hmm. saying it's interesting because we talked about curriculum when i grew up and curriculum when she grew up and they did things like they knew all the different kinds of cows mm-hmm. they knew mm-hmm. the various different kinds of crop rotations and stuff like that why cuz they were in an agrarian community so uh, while we have um course material which is provincial right now basically Mm -hmm. that most people are required to follow through back then Mm -hmm. it was really up to the community needs and requirements and what the teachers thought were important Mm -hmm. well back in those times education was a little more what we would call today vocational right yeah the whole point was what do these kids need to know to actually get and maintain a job and be part of effective part of society and actually, okay, at that point, let's take a break here for a second from for a little t- tangent and go back to actually Don's very original kind of 
half question, half statement, whatever. Wait, what Don mentioned earlier, which is that the yeah, question of the purpose of education. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. education realistically has actually two purposes in society. At least this is how yes. I see it. You can you can sure. argue. Number one is actually to socialize people and make them members of society. Right. Right. The second one is to give them the skills they need to succeed as members of society. Oh, well, then there's three. I'll give you three. Okay, what would the third one be? I wasn't be? going for that. Because I think the socialization here is absolutely key and one of the reasons why we argue that public education is, is key and important. Oh, it is, Because yes. when you're in private education, you don't get full socialization of society. You only mm-hmm. get the people that you choose to have, right? Mm-hmm. So so therefore, you often get you know very striated as well as um, – uh, various different ethnicities that are missing out in your in your a very in, a in very limited choose. education of society. Yes, yeah. absolutely for that reason. So yeah, socialization is is huge no matter what you do for sure. The the but really education I think breaks down into two things, and that is okay. Um, what kind of job are you going to get out of the end, or what am I going to learn? So oftentimes it used to be the idea that you go to university so that you get a mm-hmm. job at the end of your university degree. So many universities have debugged that, de- debunked that by mm-hmm. saying that's not the purpose of university. The purpose of university is to become a better educated about the world, a better thinker, a better mm-hmm. under- someone who understands. Certainly that will get you a job at some point, but it is not saying you don't go to university so you can become a plumber. You don't go to mm-hmm. university so you become an electrician, right? You don't – those those. that's where you go to those vocational schools and community colleges and such like that. That's the idea is that you're going to get some job at the end of your two, three, four-year degree of some sort. You go to university so that you can, you know, better develop your mind. I mean unless you're going to be a philosophy prof. Mm-hmm. Or you're going to write philosophy. Getting a degree in philosophy is not going to directly get you into very you true. Know, those kind mm-hmm. of things. So those are the two versions of education. And you hear people on both sides argue for both arguments. Like th- mm-hmm. the problem, of course, of just educating people strictly for a job means that we really don't create innovation in the same way. Mm-hmm. Because if you just if you just teach people very specific skills of what to do, you're not really teaching them how to work out of the box. You're not teaching them how to put things together in a, in a unique and varied way. Mm-hmm. You're not teaching them to do critical thinking, which is one of the big buzzwords we always talk about in school. How much critical thinking is actually being done here? How do you teach critical thinking? All that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 really, um, you 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 don't create really informed citizens if you mm-hmm. just teach vocational stuff. On the other side, not everybody needs to have all that. Mm-hmm. Some people yeah. are really happy just working under a car or just you know what I mean working working, putting together uh, a house or whatever it is. And oftentimes one blue collar has looked down on white collar and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's definitely true. I completely agree with you on that. Um, so education obviously then has several purposes um, in society. And these purposes then are going to inform, of course, how education and pop culture connect up. Obviously, yeah. at a certain point, things got a little derailed because originally it was mostly supposed to be about it was mostly supposed to be about vocational and job skills. Because back in the old days, that's really all you needed. If you were one of the kids that went to school, because remember, a lot of kids up until child 
worker legislation came in, didn't go to school. As soon as you hit, like, what, about 10, 11? Yeah, you mm-hmm. were off to work in the mines or off to work in the factories or whatever because your parents needed you to do that to live so or the, the family farm. could make money. Or the farm. Yep, absolutely. I mean, I still had kids. I don't know about you being where you are in London, but I had kids who would drop out at grade 10. Grade 10 was the last grade they would get because they were mm-hmm. planning to work at the farm. They didn't have any other desire for anything else. Yep. You know what? Yeah. That's fine. They yep. did quite well. And there was, remember, for most of the 20th century, that was perfectly reasonable. You could actually drop out um, and work in the factory or work on the farm. A lot of kids never went beyond grade eight. And in fact, for a long time, I don't think, at least in Ontario, you were required to go beyond grade eight. I don't even think you were required to go beyond that. Maybe grade even six at one point. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, because you didn't need it. You just needed basic basic literacy skills. Then you were going off to work in the factory, right? Yep. Yeah. So don't need that stuff. All right, so then, how does this connect with popular culture, Don? Oh, you guys have kind of hit on a couple of interesting points. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because what you find when you look at what we think of education Mm -hmm. and and how, like, say, we were were taught, that technique kind of comes post-World War II. Mm -hmm. And if you look at our educational system was designed to breed factory workers. Mm -hmm. That's why you work in... You go to school, you have classes, it works in shifts. Yep, true. It the it the way it's timed, the way you line up for stuff, the mm-hmm. the the way you're taught to shunt from location to location kind of thing. That was all part of the uh the the post World War II new industrial process mm-hmm. kind of thing. What you get and, and that that's gonna come back, that's why I mentioned it now, but going back further, uh when you look at the earliest days, like Again, say medieval period, mm-hmm. pretty much on up till till uh, till the Industrial Revolution. Because education was optional, the educated were seen as, as kind of odd. Like it was kind of uh, a hoity-toity thing. Mm-hmm. Being educated was for the well-to-do. You'd get a certain measure of respect, but the citizens would keep kind of a distance from me because there was also a rep that the educated were also a little bit of weirdos. Well, they, especially they were definitely yeah well the nerds for the time yeah. oh not not the nerds they were like the frightening jocks kind of thing oh like okay. like that's true as and especially if you were into something like say uh medicine mm-hmm. medicine freaked people out because they always wondered like what are they doing why are they learning about what's inside a person and they seem obsessed with like blood and fluids and that, like the evil wizards that live out in the forest <laughs> do. Yep. And then when you got to the idea of uh, anatomy and anatomical dissection, in the earliest days of, of uh, I guess we'd say formal medicine, mm-hmm. that shit was illegal. Mm. And that's where the idea of like a grave robber come from. It was people who would like dig up fresh corpses to sell to the medical college so the medical students could dissect them and see all the parts. And that was considered like, you know, defiling a corpse is like the worst, most satanic, brutal thing you could ever do before the invention of D&D and Ozzy Osbourne. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and education, people would see that'd be a benefit to society because these people would advance things. They'd invent things. They'd build mm-hmm. big cities and that. But they were also seen as like these kind of weird people that obsessed of different things and may truly be godless. And they were, they, they, they yeah, they, they were kind of inside outsiders. Mm-hmm. 
until you get what Jack was talking about, when you get to like the uh, the 1920s, around that time, mm-hmm. there's something of a change because, like we've talked about before, you don't really have teenagers yet as a thing people recognize. Mm-hmm. But you're getting this image of of what Jack was talking about is how people saw the quote-unquote college kids. Mm-hmm. And there's this kind of change in, in perception that the educated aren't these weird, stuffy old guys in robes. You're getting that kind of drunken frat boy image coming to the fore. Mm-hmm. And I think in part because education opens up, like in the late 1800s and going into the 1900s, education opens up, it's available to more people. Uh, we just came out of World War One. People are kind of feeling good. They're feeling up. There's a sense of the future. You know, we just weathered something terrible and out of war comes technological advancement. So people are thinking of the future again. There's this idea that if you want to get on board, now you kind of have to have an education. Hmm. Because we're becoming more technologically advanced and that requires diversification of skills. So people are getting into that. And it's also that idea that when you're going into college, in a lot of ways it's seen as an extended childhood because you're not out working yet. You're not tilling the soil and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that's one of the first real times that media and the educational system collide because of that idea of, of like the you know the the strapping young sport college kid type. Mm-hmm. That there's that weird. It's still almost an elite thing, mm-hmm. but it's common enough that it's not terrifying and frightening like those weird old guys in the robes chopping up dead bodies. <laughs> right. Although you can see it if you look at the media of that era. Like I'm talking about the early 20th century, where the professor, and this would go on for quite a while, that professors are viewed with a little bit of awe and a little bit of distance. Like they are Mm. generally still considered rare enough and special enough that if you're a professor of something, that's a really impressive accomplishment. Yeah. Yeah. You can tell there's a, there's a a bunch of old movies, like an Andy Hardy movies and stuff like that. The Mm. term professor is Mm -hmm. used both as a, as a, as a positive, but also kind of like a negative, like, wow, this guy's way too smart for his own good kind of thing, you know? Mm. Yeah. So, same with well, that. Yeah. Well, and I and I think you're seeing that because that comes out of a, a weird sense of resentment. It's a geezerism, mm-hmm. sure. Because you've got mom and dad and grandpa that grew up on the farm, and now you got like little Billy. He doesn't want to be a farmer. He's going to learn them newfangled books, and he wants to be an engineer, whatever that is. And working the farm is too good for him, and blah blah blah. And combined with that fear that because you've got technological advancement. The mm-hmm. older people are looking at this stuff and they're like, wait, you have these things called tractors that mean all of these farmers you don't really need anymore. And and it's the kind of stuff that you see today and we'll see again and you see all the time that this is kind of the point because of the technological advancements, people are kind of starting to feel a little bit of future shock and a little anxiety because mm-hmm. it becomes like like if my dad tilled the field and his dad tilled the field and his dad tilled the field and I tilled the field. There isn't really a big fear of the future. I know the future. I'll be out here tilling the field, teaching my 18 kids, half of which will survive, how to till the field as well. <laughs> mm-hmm. But when you get, like I say, after that that post-World War One thing where you've got 
even before when you had like the the railroads across north american that you start to have that kind of sense of anxiety Mm -hmm. and the educational system is seen as part of that because it's seen as propagating this thing that's going to make you obsolete and i think what you're kind of hitting at with that idea of professors were still seen as as figures of awe and menace in a lot mm-hmm. of cases and menace yeah the whole idea of yeah. mad scientist yeah yeah and oh not even just that the old old school british university they're still allowed to beat you even though you're 21 kind of thing oh yeah there's that too yes yeah and the term professor is is it's 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 a uh, an insult and a compliment because it's tying into that idea of education is starting to be seen as the road to the future but the future isn't exactly set in stone and isn't clear and that's starting to worry people and you're seeing education becoming both glorious and horrifying it's becoming both the good thing your your best friend and your biggest adversary right okay that makes sense and uh well it's it's an agent of change, right? Yeah. Or it's seen as an agent of change. Well, yeah. Well, I would argue education is an agent of change. That's what it does. The whole point of education is to actually make you a better person in theory and a better part of society. Sometimes. Because, again, it's it, it goes to that idea after World War II, the educational system was designed – again, it's it, – it's seen now as a method of socialization to make you a good citizen, however you're going to define that. Mm-hmm. And it kind of starts teaching a part of that how to fit in. Right. Like in, in the past, education was sort of its own thing. Like in, in way in the past, because it was so limited for people, it was like joining a secret society. And then... Sometimes literally. Yeah. And then when you get to the... Uh, you get to the more modern era, like the turn of the last century, it's kind of more seen as a thing. But I think a lot of people, maybe out of, again, fear and jealousy, it's also seen as just kind of an extended party to some degree. Mm-hmm. Well, if and you know I what's think, really going on, it is an extended party. Yeah, and I think that's part of where you start seeing this idea that people are building it up and tearing it down at the same time because at least the image of, of what education is because again, it's seen as your savior and the villain. Mm-hmm. And then when you start getting into, yeah, like the forties and the fifties after world war two, it becomes something everybody does. Like even in the 1920s grade school, wasn't something that everybody did. And if you did it, you might only get to grade three or four. Mm. And then you went off to work either on the farm or the factories. And that wasn't unusual. But when you get to the 50s, at least finishing like grade school is expected. And even finishing high school, at least part of high school, because I think a lot of places, uh, compulsory education stopped around grade 10. Mm-hmm. Or because of circumstances, if you made it to like grade 10, yeah, that's good enough. Now you can go work in an office at the factory and, and have a job. Yeah, you ge- well, you generally wouldn't need anything more than grade 10. Like anything yeah. more than that is you're going into higher education at that point. Yeah, or or at least you're starting you're starting to 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 glean the edge of that because technology is still advancing. This is uh population's growing, you're getting a diversification of the kind of jobs need the uh, kind of jobs that you need for society. 
even stuff that was generally considered, you know, hands-on work, there's becoming an increasing technical side because like we were, we were saying like farming, farming's becoming increasingly technical. So -hmm. you need specialized training to do it now. It's not just, it's not just the old school. Here's where the seed goes. Here's how to read the sky. Here's how to plan ahead for the season. Now you have to do that. Plus know how to fix a tractor plus know how to work a thresher. Plus you have to have an understanding of how marketing works because I'm not just going into town to the, uh, to the fair to sell my stuff. I'm selling it to like a big company and I have to understand the interstate system and all that. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the reasons why education is becoming more and more mandatory. Mm -hmm. And because of that, you're starting to see it's not scary anymore. But I think when you start getting into, say, the 50s and that, you start seeing another twist where education, especially, like, say, higher education is still seen as kind of a deferment of childhood. Mm -hmm. But from the childhood part of view, education is starting to be seen more adversarial because for more of your life, somebody else is telling you what to do. And trying to explain these vague concepts that may or may not have anything to do with you later on. Mm-hmm. Here's here's a thought that I had while you were talking. Is those are all great things. Um, one could take a look at education on an evolution evolutionary point of view. Um, is and, and Rob, as a teacher, you'll probably agree mm-hmm. with me on this. And but w- when you see a student really take hold of the subject matter mm-hmm. they they facilitate a kind of a like i don't want to say an addiction but they're certainly infected with education they're infected mm-hmm. with 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 the ideas with the thing so if you thought of that as as education is as as a kind of disease mm-hmm. and the, in that respect that because <laughs> because we're, we create an immunity in the respect that i don't want to learn this stuff as we get mm-hmm. older, the less we want to learn because the less it takes, it takes effort. It takes, it takes energy. It takes all, yeah. all that yeah. kind of stuff. It's like the body builds an immunization against learning kind of thing. <laughs> so in that way, it's almost like every, every generation we get new variants of the disease and popular mm-hmm. culture and nerd culture constantly keep us infected. So weird but interesting way of looking at it because if you think about it you have okay. to be able to 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 enter education in a way that they don't expect it so like you know viral viral infections have to get through past any kind of uh safeguards that you have right so if you're mm. going to get a kid interested in uh let's say a couple of some years ago because we use this example you want them to to read edgar Allan poe's the raven you mm-hmm. show them that you show them the Simpsons version of it uh-huh. decades yeah. ago, and it gets right past their defenses. Their immune system is already overloaded because they think Simpsons. There's no learning in that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then you've got them like, oh, crap. This was the actual poem that they just did an animation for. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's it, it's fascinating how. People, people's natural inclination in many cases, unless you've been infected early mm-hmm. <laughs> with with this education bug, which I would say Rob and I both are. Most mm-hmm. teachers I know love learning, right? True. So we are we are patient zero for our students, <laughs> 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 and we're looking for every possible way to infect them with this stuff. 
Well, it's the idea. Well, remember, we're fighting. It's if you want to go to that idea, it's not a virus. It's a meme. You know that I sure. the the but the meme a meme is a virus. And, well, okay, you, it functions <laughs> like a virus. Main meme it does. Too. Yeah. Um, just watch Pontypool. Um, exactly. Meme, memes <laughs> and viruses have a lot in common. Um, yeah. So it, I would argue you're right. No, no, you're exactly right. It's but there's also remember they've got a counter meme or counter virus, whatever, which basically sure. says um, this as education stuff is boring. These teachers are teaching us stuff that we don't really need to know. It's just getting in the way of the more important stuff like socialization, you know, hanging out, having fun with your friends. It's just stupid mm. stuff that we're forced to learn. Yeah, that's their white blood cells. That's their whole body saying, we're <laughs> happy with the system the way it is. Exactly. Why are you introducing some foreign agent into our into our environment? Mm-hmm. That's true. <laughs> Okay. It's kind of crazy when you think about it that way. But you can see a lot of similarities. At least I can. So, it actually, yeah, it's, it's like I say, it's a weird analogy, but it makes it perfect is. sense. It does make perfect sense. Yeah, no, no, no. I can, uh, I can totally get that. <laughs> um, Sorry, I, I, I didn't want that to be a conversation ender. I just thought it was a, it would be a great way to end the entire, <laughs> the entire thing. Is that you know, in the end, nerd culture is the ultimate ability to infect people with education. Because nerds are so thrilled with what they know about their tiny little slice of nerddom, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you get any bunch of nerds, it doesn't matter what it is, they're going to have all the stats down. They have the maths. They have, the, they have the, the, the language, the vocabulary. They have the philosophy. They have all of those elements put together for that mm-hmm. particular, uh, particular nerddom. Maybe, maybe uh, nerddom and, and, and that kind of thing is a very specialized virus. Well, okay. If, yeah. if I if I can comment, um, I would say that actually, pop culture has, in some ways, done wonderful things for education. Going back yes. to what you actually what you're talking about, um, I would because I do think that um, seeing what teachers can be on the small and big screen and in stories um, has inspired many people to become teachers, mm-hmm. and I would argue that. The pop culture has brought many uh, educational materials and made people interested in education in from many different ways. For example, when you have a character that's, let's say, a scientist in a story that's actually the hero and main character of a story, it they usually find that there's a huge number of people that are inspired by if it's to uh, by that person to go on into science or go into you know, STEM fields or things like that. Star Trek in North America and basically every Japanese adventure series has well, those science team scientists. Well, not all of them. All that, not all of them yeah. anymore. That they they stopped that a while back ago. At, but, no, but back in the day, we're talking about right. But back That's in the like day, 60s. But oh yeah, back in the sixties, you're right. Uh, yeah. But even before then, well, the sixties, the ultimate example would be Doctor Who. Sure, because mm-hmm. remember, Doctor Who was the first created as an educational series. Yeah, and and the first couple seasons, he really is going to like historical periods. He's actually he he's the whole point is to bring history to life. That was the whole point of Doctor Who. Mm -hmm. It's unfortunate he got hijacked by Daleks, and well, that was that. But anyway, (laughs) um, because people didn't want that learning. Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. not Professor Kitzel. 
the animation yeah. back in the day too for those same reasons so yep <laughs> exactly yeah. or I, I thought you were going to mention uh miss is it miss quiznell or miss quitzel or something like that from the magic school bus oh jeez, oh, yeah that's frizzle Quizzle. Okay, there we go. I, yeah, I, one, I, was, I was too old for that one, but I do remember other other kids talking about it for sure. Well, I had yeah, to I, check out on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was going to say, yeah, because that's what Mission Magic was, the magic school bus without a bus, because Filmation couldn't afford to animate one. Bill right. Nye. Mm-hmm. Bill Nye. Dex- exactly. Dexter's Lab or something. What was the other one that was kind of like Bill Nye-esque or something, but it was... Oh, Beekman's World. Beekman's World. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yep, no, no, and actually, there've been many. I think if we were to look, there've probably been many pop culture scientists who over mm-hmm. the years, and Mr. Wizard, Mr. Wizard, exactly, who are people who are basically there to try to make education and learning interesting. People who've got charisma, they're basically great teachers, is what they are. I'm mm-hmm. laughing because I love John Bell's character, Mr. Wizard, with two Zs, and he's got uh-huh. a little kid named Billy. And he always ends up blowing Billy up for something. Like, We're going to learn about nitroglycerin today, Billy. <laughs> you know, sit on that chair and juggle these balls. <laughs> I don't know if I like this, Mr. Wizard. No, it'll work just fine. <laughs> there we go. Anyway, so, yeah. yeah, so there's no question that uh, pop culture has been uh, a spreader, if you want to call it, or uh, whatever whatever term you want to use, of of. You know the idea that education is worthwhile and that uh, teachers can be can transform people's lives, and that uh, it's an important part of our life, an important part of our existence. I mean, yeah, Star Trek, Doctor Who's. Um, I'm sure we can go way farther back than this. I mean, mm-hmm. look at the '50s B movies, for example, with all their like scientist heroes, and yeah. um, I'm sure we and can warnings. Probably... And, oh, Let's not well, forget yeah, exactly. Reefer Madness and all that stuff that was sent to try to to, to educate the youth <laughs> in that respect, right? Yeah, but well, we that... didn't need to know about that stuff. We just needed to know how to blow up our giant ants. Well, yeah, because... <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, because you, you hit at something, too, that the nature of this is cyclical, because you mentioned uh, the image of the nerd and nerddom mm-hmm. perpetuating education. Mm-hmm. Nerddom is just as often the opponent of education. Because if you go back, um, this kind of starts in the 70s, but it takes off in the 80s, that there are a lot of cases where it's portrayed that the school and the system is actually holding the nerd kid back. Mm -hmm. That that became a running theme. I think in the 80s, because of like when you had home computers taking over and that became a thing and people thought that I could take like my VIC-20 and hack into NORAD with it. Mm Mm-hmm. The idea of, of a nerd with somebody who could control these magic computing boxes. And you got a lot of stories coming out of that time where, yeah, the the, the education represented the system. Mm-hmm. And it was trying to crush this guy's, like, inquisitive spirit or his taskings or mm-hmm. or his, his purpose. And in that case, in a lot of ways, nerddom became the opponent of education. Right. That's true. Yeah, and and if you think about even way further back, the R gang thing, uh, mm-hmm. the, the nerds and the R gang thing are often uh, opponents to the main characters. Yeah. Right? What was the name of the kid who was always going after Darla? Who was the wasn't nerd? he actually literally called Poindexter? He might have, yeah, something I, like that. But I, I think I'm not... I think that's where the term Poindexter comes from. I think he's from R gang. I think that could have been. I'll, I'll look that up. 
I always knew them as little rascals. They called mm. our gang later on because I think they just had to get rebranded for some reason or another. But yeah, that knows also the idea that uh, there were so many ripoffs of them at one point that I think actually you're wrong, Jack. They were branded as little rascals for television, but they predate mm. television, and yes. that's why. Yeah. That's okay. what I mean. I said I always knew them as little rascals because I only watched them on television. How old right. do you think I am, anyway? <laughs> well, I watched them on television too because they reran them when we were kids. We we're both yeah, the same exactly. Age, All so, the time yeah. it was like global or something like that. They kept putting them on because so. well, they were just cheap filler. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that and Gilligan's Island. Yeah, and uh, for a while, Star Trek had uh, CBC were running old Star Treks for a long time too. So that was fun. Mm-hmm. Yep, I remember those mm-hmm. days. Mm. Um, let's see. Yeah, there's, I'm, I'm just quickly looking it up. So I want to take another quick tack too, if we can. Um, oh, sure. Uh, one of the problems that I have as a teacher is that I, there's almost two kinds of teachers. Those who lean into, um, uh, sort of just saying, uh, well, I'm just going to teach popular culture mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and those who are, uh, more classical in their nature. Right. So I, right. I consider myself more classical in my nature, right? I'm not going to just teach the kids um, the – I'm not going to bring in stuff that they already know as the final end game mm-hmm. to their stuff. Mm-hmm. So I, there's a very famous story that um, my my buddy tells uh, about another teacher, and I won't say names here because I don't want to get anyone in trouble. But mm-hmm. this other teacher had trouble sort of teaching um, Shakespeare. And so um, – so he did the whole, um, uh, oh, you don't want to, or poetry. You don't, it was poetry, sorry. You don't mm-hmm. want to learn poetry. He did the whole, uh, fine, just throw all your poetry books out in the garbage kind of thing, and, and we'll do whatever you want to do. And, and you get them involved, and they were doing hip-hop and stuff like that. Uh, but And, and you know, he, he went and talked to his apartment head and said, you know, see how great a teacher I am. I got these kids involved in that. The department head said, yeah, but you just threw away what the curriculum was, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So in the end, you still want them to have the connection to the deeper stuff. As the story mm-hmm. goes, you know, um, uh, 1984 is a much deeper book than The Five People I'd Meet in Heaven. Yep. Uh-huh. Right? And so you, you want them to be able to reach towards tougher stuff to read because you want to pull really interesting stuff out to talk about for that reason. So Mm -hmm. I'll bring in popular culture stuff, but to connect it to longer, more deeper stuff to do that. And I know a lot of teachers that don't. And I think that they're not doing justice to this, to students and education by just sort of leaving it with stuff that they love. Because it's kind of like giving giving you bubble gum, but forgetting that you've got steak waiting and all the other stuff that's actually going to build your body, kind of thing in that respect, right? Right. So it's that. So have you come across that too, as a teacher? Have you found teachers that are just sort of like lean right into whatever the whatever those cool kids are doing right now, and that's as far as I'm going to teach them, so I can get them happy because they already like that stuff. That's one of the reasons. Like I'll like mm. I'll throw in the Twilight Zone, right? And, the Twilight Zone is a great show because, for a number of reasons. It's brilliantly done, but it's a great little 22-minute short story right? that they can watch visually. And a lot of these kids start off going, oh, I hate black and white. I never watched black and white. But I would say 80 – you never get 100% in anything you do. But I would say 80 to 85% of those kids 
look forward to the next one because they forget about the black and white and they get into the story regardless of the time where it's come. And then we can start taking it apart and start talking about things like the monsters are due on Maple Street. Yeah, are they mm. really talking about aliens? No, they're not. When's this happening, right? Oh, mm. so there were, there were communists that people were worried about. Oh, yeah. In fact, there was this couple. Somebody want to look up on their phone a couple that were actually killed because they were thought to be Russian spies? And so then the next thing you know, there's that huge conversation that comes from that kind of thing. But you don't get that kind of step unless you as a teacher have mm. the deeper understanding of where these things are going and what you want to do with it. Mm-hmm. I see. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. I've encountered some teachers like that, but you have to understand that I'm working at the uh, college level. Right. So for the most part, my fellow teachers are, um, you know, they're professors for the most part. Most, uh, now, Many of them have graduated with PhDs. Many of them have PhDs. And right. so they take their, they take education very seriously. Mm-hmm. And so as an end result, they're not really that inclined to lean into popular culture because, okay. because they, they're much more serious academics. Um, gotcha. I've got a few of them, a few people I know that actually will try to incorporate some uh, pop culture stuff into their lectures. Mm-hmm. Um, I do. I actually incorporate some pop culture stuff, but there's a catch. I'm usually doing this in classes where I'm teaching media studies. So right. my stuff is based on popular culture. So just popular culture of different eras. So I have to sometimes compare popular culture from one era to another. Right. And, you know, I will do little things like that, or um, I will bring in things that I think are relevant. Like I admit, and I've mentioned this before, I'm obsessed with epic rap battles of history, or at least I was when they were good. But anyway, that's not the point. The point is, is that um, so occasionally if there's an epic rap battle that's that's, uh, two minutes long and relevant to what we're talking about, hey, let's talk, let's let's show that just for fun, you know, to to liven things up. Um, I subscribe to the theory. Just let me just finish. I subscribe to the theory that um, on your average person that has about a 20 minute attention span. And after about 20 minutes, their brain will start to wander unless they have something to really keep them focused. So I try not to focus on any one thing more than 20 minutes. And yeah. then I will usually try to have some uh, something that will kind of uh, refresh, so to speak. You know, something like an epic rap battle for a couple of minutes. And then we'll go on to something else. Yeah. Uh, so I use them as kind of class breaks. into segments for that exactly. reason. How long are your classes? Either 50 or 100, basically, depending on whether yeah, it's one or two hours. Mine are 75. I do three 75-minute classes. Wow. So, so, yeah. They're pretty long. Yeah, that can so get pretty I long. I usually with start off with my English class. I usually get them reading on their own. Mm-hmm. So I give them a 15, 20-minute reading period at the beginning because I, I find that it settles them down oh, and yeah. gets them into a totally different place. Good and thinking. then, you know, then we do various different things for that particular reason. It's almost like... Um, you know, popular culture makes a really excellent entry point for uh, education. It's almost like you know, it's like it's it's the needle that gets the <laughs> that gets the education in the system, or it's the mm. it's the covered pill that tastes really good because it's got a sweet taste to it mm, to get true. to get that. If it's used for that reason, it's great. But if you're just giving somebody a sugar pill, you're not getting as much out of it. Yeah, exactly. Huh. By the way, complete side note. Um, the, uh, the, that character we were talking about earlier in, from the R gang stuff, the rich kid was actually Waldo. Waldo. Yeah. Ah, I don't think it's Poindexter. Okay. not Poindexter. I, I, I thought Poindexter up. came from the, the nerds or something. Wasn't it Revenge of the Nerds? Yeah, Wasn't I think it was. I think Poindexter? you're right. 
Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Ranger of Nerds has a character named Poindexter. I remember that. Yeah. So I think that's where that comes from. I apologize. No worries. Any fusion, any confusion that may have caused. Okay, well, let's let's take a look at it another way. So, what about education? That's, or sorry, what about pop culture that's critical of education? Because it goes both ways. Not all pop culture celebrates education. Some of it is very critical. Mm-hmm. So, for example, many people will cite uh, Dead Poet Society as like you know one of their favorite movies ever. Even today, it still pops up quite a bit. Believe it or not, and mm-hmm. I would argue that movie in some ways is actually. It's about the power of education, that's absolutely true, but it's somewhat critical of education in some ways too, where what they're doing is they're presenting education, okay, well, we have this amazing teacher, but spoiler alert, he, you know, because he's an amazing teacher and he's somewhat unethical, he's drummed out eventually at the end of the film. Like, he can't stay because he's a teacher that speaks to them on their level. He's drummed out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, basically, if you're looking at at, at that kind of permutation, mm. there's really only three movies mm-hmm. that ever ever that pertain to to the depiction of of education in 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 like film and pop culture. Okay, and every there's been a million because you mentioned Dead Poet Society. Mm-hmm. Dead Poet Society is just basically that generation's permutation of to sir with love okay yeah i'd agree with that and that's one of them the other the other one that anybody who's like 40 will get it probably chuckle at this the other movie that you see pertaining to education is blackboard jungle okay Mm -hmm. because that's the one we got a million versions of in the 80s we're like it's the the poor gang riddled school that the uh the optimistic young teacher shows up and he like through a combination of moxie and slapping a couple of kids around he ends up turning them around my favorite version of that was the class of 1984 that's what i that's that's what i was thinking and that's what no welcome back cotter come on <laughs> well, see, see that's another that's another version of it yeah um because mm-hmm. there's there's the class of 1984 and there's the class of 1994 uh-huh. I was Which in class of 1999? Yeah, that's it. That's the one with the androids. Yes. yes. But Night Class, which is, they're, they're not related to each other at all. They're just, it's just the fact no. they just both have the class of in the title. If well, I can come... clarify, sorry, go ahead. Oh, oh no, I was going to say, but they come out of that same school of thought. That yes, they do. It's that teacher, be they an android or an optimistic young dude, mm-hmm. that comes to the horrible school and straightens it up or blows it out up, one or the other. Uh-huh. <laughs> because <laughs> uh the class of 1984 if you really want to get a taste of 80sness that's a good one because mm-hmm. look at the terrifying gang in that movie <laughs> like, like they're so 80s they have huge hair and they look like they just stepped out of a rat video yeah <laughs> and they're like oh my god the the leader of the gang i think is like five one weighs like maybe 60 pounds like it's quite the it's it's quite the thing, but that's that idea that that's the mm. the other take. And then the last one is is uh, there might be an older version, but I know it is. Don't knock the rock. I'm don't I haven't seen that one. Can you explain? Nope. You you've seen it a couple times. You saw it when it was called Footloose. Oh, okay. Oh. Okay. And yeah, basically any movie that pertains to the kids and education is one of those three movies. So mm, when you say Kevin Footloose, Bacon. 
<laughs> Actually, wouldn't I know it better than is Ferris Bueller's Day Off? <laughs> no, because Ferris Bueller's Day Off is is it's it's something that kind of comes about in the seventies. Because what Ferris Bueller's Day Off is, it's kind of the PG version of Animal House, right? And it's kind of the high school version of Revenge of the Nerds. Mm-hmm. It's that idea that the the it it's it's almost it's almost don't knock the rock, mm-hmm. but the the educational part is totally irrelevant. Like like don't knock the rock like Footloose years mm-hmm. like Jesus like, like fast years times after. in Richmond High same yeah. yeah yeah that's the one Ferris Bueller comes from that school of thought which you yeah. kind of don't get till the till the seven well I'm gonna say that Rebel Without a Cause is probably the beginning of that mm-hmm because the educational component is kind of just a side thing mm-hmm. yeah it, the education is getting in the way of growing up yeah but it's right? not but and it's that's... not even getting in the way it's it's kind of just yeah they're teachers but haha he's a loser whatever right. kind of thing but you yeah, have sort of like it's it's get it's getting in the way they feel the kids are feel like it's getting in the way of their growing up but then they learn at the very end the the message of but it's it's those lessons they've learned growing up with education as well that will get them through, the, you know, through their adulthood kind of thing. That's, you know, all those things are important. You know, the stuff mm-hmm. we did inside of school and the stuff we did outside of school, right? That That's that's their whole thing. Now, I, I do want to take – I had to think about it for a minute because um, Dead Poet Society is, is one of my personal favorite uh, movies as well, mm-hmm. being an English teacher that I am. Um, and I think the problem is – because I think if you look at it, the problem was that he definitively told them to do something that he knew was wrong. And mm-hmm. that was to find out about the original Dead Poet Society, sneak off into a cave mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. do stuff there outside of the outside of the rules. Right. Well, he was doing it inside of the rules and not he knew that he that they liked him and that mm-hmm. if he could get them to do stuff like he did as a kid he would connect with them more and right. he liked that aspect. And so that's where it's sort of like his ego got in the way. And that was the problem. It started there. It wasn't the kid who committed suicide, although that was the final straw. It mm-hmm. was all those other things that came up to that point, right? That he, that he, he sort of built these kids with stuff that they weren't emotionally prepared to do in that respect. And the reason why you, you know that like that was that was a personal line that he drew that made, that was where the that's where education fought back. But if you remember in the movie, while mm-hmm. he's leaving, one of his colleagues who was doing things all old school and fashion was out with his class doing what he was doing, having them walk around and practice Latin mm-hmm. in ways. So he he, he was. He was still using um, new techniques to connect with those kids because he knew that they love sports. So he'd have them out there, you know, kicking a ball while he was doing poetry and stuff like stuff like that. That wasn't the problem. Mm-hmm. The problem mm-hmm. was the line that he crossed personally. Okay, it's yeah, been a while. It, I apologize if I messed that one up. Not at all. Yeah. Not at all. It's an older movie. I just I I've seen the movie so many times. I can't show <laughs> it in my class anymore because of the of the uh, you know the the kid who commits suicide now it's 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 considered to be really in bad taste for kids and they can't see that it'll be too upsetting for them and the whole bit but um it I, it's too bad because it was a really valuable uh tool to talk about a bunch of different things 
related to education and where the line is crossed. Yeah, mm. it it does because one of the other side effects of that is that comes out of like a a very um, pro nerd era in society. Mm-hmm. Because the big irony, and I think what makes it sympathetic for the audience is that everything that like Robin Williams' character is getting them to do is basically what kids their age would normally be doing except because these kids are kind of like the nerdy uptight sort of kids they don't think to do it right so even though he's he's technically breaking the rules the whole premise is that you know these kids are just too too book smart they're not like learning how to rest yeah and not learning how to like you know carpe diem seize the fish and (laughs) really and like really live life and then that's why the the it's 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 the 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 man keeping him down man because mm-hmm. one of the things you get in like the ferris bueller type movies and the rebel without a cause one when everything that comes out of that one of the big differences is that at the end they don't reconcile with authority mm-hmm. like that was the whole point of rebel without a, uh, a cause right was that most of the adults, except for the the one person's family, her dad was kind of a dick. They were trying to to help, but they just didn't understand, and they never get that understanding. And it's like Ferris Bueller's Day Off. What did Ferris learn at the end? That he can do whatever he wants. Basically, he's yeah. got magic powers, you know. Yeah. And that's what makes that's what makes those kind of things different. Like that was um, even if you go to like you know animal house and revenge of the nerds what did they learn that we are more powerful than authority like mm-hmm. same thing fast times at ridgemont high like spicoli sort of comes to terms with mr hand but all of the rest of their characters their lives are happening outside of of school the school has next to nothing to do with anything that matters to them and and that's why i say that's a weird example because that kind of it plays more to the idea of what is a teenager mm. to the exclusion of the education part, typically. Right. And that that's why, like, I think in a lot of ways, the Dead Poet Society, it clearly comes out of the To Sir With Love school of, of filmmaking. But I think because you're getting to the, uh, the end of the 80s and you're getting to the end of the Hug a Nerd era, that's why you're starting to see it veer off into, like, uh, uh, Rebel Without a Clue kind of territory. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. Okay, now what about the portrayal of teachers as villains, which in many stories, especially about young people, they often are. Ferris mm-hmm. Bueller's Day Off is a perfect example. The principal is the, like the worst, right? Yeah. My exactly. dad hated that movie because of that. He just hated to... <laughs> and And of course, you know, we've all seen, even in um, uh, Boston Public, for example, we've seen... Uh, portrayals of teachers in most shows they're just like that would never happen i'm sorry mm-hmm. teacher never acts that way teacher teacher never talks to a student. if teacher talked to a student that way they wouldn't have a job the next day you know what i mean there's certain things that teachers do in movies for the sake of drama that just doesn't occur in, in yeah you know it and if it does it's nowadays if it does it ends up becoming viral right because <laughs> some kids mm. gonna photo it <laughs> put it on their phone right so right I mean, yes and no. If you're talking about things like a teacher beating a student, yeah, that used to be much more common once upon a time. Actually, common is probably not the right word. I don't think it was ever yeah. really common. I no. think it did happen occasionally, though. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And definitely much more in the era before social media. Um, For sure. 
I can tell you in Asia, it still yeah. happens a surprising amount, actually. Um, because again, different cultures have different ideas and some cultures, teachers are considered alternate parents and right, it's perfectly right. within their right to, uh, punish the student and the parents will be like, hell yeah. Did you hit him hard enough? Did you use the belt? <laughs> um, well, did and, I tell you my story yeah. about my scar on my chin? No. So my favorite teacher in, uh, was my, one of my, uh, my grade school teacher was a great a teacher from grade six, Mr. Norris. God rest his soul. He's probably long past now, so I can say this. And mm. um, for one one particular day, I had been chatting in class, and he had told me to stop talking several times, and he came back and clipped me on the back of the head. And my chin went down on the desk and split wide open. Oh. And so I was in grade mm-hmm. six, and I remember him saying, you know, like at the beginning, like, you guys are in grade six, if you have to go to the washroom, just go to the washroom. You don't need to ask as long as you don't go on a regular basis. So I, I went in the washroom because I'm bleeding everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. And he came smashing in, yelling, like, who told you you could leave the class? And I look at him, and my shirt is, like, covered in blood, right, at this top <laughs> point. And so then he's like, and I, th- looking back, I knew he must have been freaking out. He must have been scared. Yeah. Because he had right. hurt me. And I i mean, he really liked me. I, we, we got along quite well. This is why students are like, I would have punched him back, went, no, you wouldn't have. It never, you, it wouldn't have occurred to you to hit a, a teacher back for doing something like that. So I went home to my parents, who are both uh, teachers, of course. Mm-hmm. And I told them what happened. And I say to my students, what do you think happened? They said, well, he lost his job. And I was like, no. The first thing they said is, what did you do to drive him past the bonds of rationality that he had to do that? Mm. Like, that's the, their thought was, boy, you must have drove him crazy. And that yeah. was the end of the story, right? They, they didn't say anything beyond that. Nowadays, you you literally you would have been taken out by the police nowadays if you hit a student like that. Like, there's... Mm. There's, there's no, and I'm not saying we should go back to those days in any way, shape, or form. Don't get me wrong. I don't think it's right to be hitting kids. But my father, as a principal, he was quite concerned because if something was going very badly in the school, and it still is to this day, mm-hmm. he couldn't just take a kid by the shoulder and say, come with me. He did, but he knew he was taking his, his entire career in his hands every time he did it. Because if a kid was beating up another kid, and this is what's happening in Ontario right now, they've done a number of different stories on CBC. You can go check it out. There are a, a number of kids that are abusing teachers, and teachers yeah. can't do anything. There's a there's a story about a kindergarten teacher who a kid was hitting in the legs with a snow shovel over and over and over again. And all she could say is, Johnny, put that down. Johnny, Johnny, put that down. She couldn't even take the snow shovel from him. For fear that it would be considered, you know, some kind of act of violence. Mm-hmm. So we've we've gone very far in the other side. I know there's a big tangent on on discipline, but mm-hmm. the the biggest c- biggest concern, of course, in learning is self discipline. You have to have mm-hmm. some kind of self discipline to be able to do that, mm-hmm. and that's that's lacking as in all forms of discipline. Well, so. but and this ties back into another pop culture shift, where mm-hmm. once upon a time, even in North America, teachers. And parents were a team working, working towards children's education. Right. And teachers were there to be important and respected parts of society, as they yeah. are in many other places. But at a certain point, teachers became the villain right. in popular mm-hmm. culture. Teachers, you know, lazy teachers, you know, they only get like, uh, you know, they get their two months off in the summer and yet they still complain and they want more money, et cetera, et cetera. 
And I do think it comes back to the demonification of teachers, believe it or not, by the government. Because yep. specifically the teachers union. Right. As soon as teachers start fighting with the government, suddenly all this anti-teacher stuff starts popping up. Well, where is it coming from? It's not coming from the general public. It started coming from the government, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, political groups and different groups like that who are against the teachers union. And that crept into society in general. And now mm -hmm. we've got generations of students that have no respect for teachers whatsoever and parents automatically assume that if a teacher does do anything to discipline a student obviously their little angel is innocent the teacher must have been a bad person because all oh, we all know about those teachers yeah there is that there is that that, that element to it and we're not saying neither one of us is saying there aren't bad teachers at oh times, there are for sure there are definitely bad teachers. um but um, but yeah the, the suggestion and you take a look at like popular culture today like there's I don't know if the show is still going. Mr. D. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was he was about a teacher who was really a terrible teacher. You know, he talked about things like he would grade students by throwing their work down the stairs. And the ones on the highest would get an A and stuff like that. And like that stuff like that would never would never fly, of course, as a teacher. But I always question. I well, <laughs> yeah, now because parents are always asking where this is coming from. Like, how, how, justify your grading, and for one That's reason true. or another. So that, you know, I mean, for better or worse, that's a, that's one of the better things, I think, is that you we need to be a lot more just uh, justify our grades, at least in the high school level. I can't speak for college or university levels. But my big um, question is actually, it's sorry. Oh, no, sorry. I will stop you. Keep going. Sorry. OK. Sorry. My big question is, wh why do those shows have access to actual schools? And I think the real reason is, is that um, if you can make teachers look bad then you do have bargaining chips. So they also get paid to, to, to rent out those schools, those companies, those things, stuff like that. But mm -hmm. um, if, if as, a, as an educator and as a, as a union member, one of the things I would be asking about before you know, they, they allow these things to be rented out, not that unions have power to say no to this stuff like that, is like, how is this going to represent our, our profession? How mm -hmm. is this going to represent education uh, altogether? Because... These, these things don't live in a vacuum, right? If you just mm -hmm. you present that, people say, oh, it's just all for fun and comedy. Well, these these are the kind of things that people think back upon. I, I know Tony Danza had a show. Uh, I don't Did you ever see that where he went back to school? And because before Tony oh, Danza yeah. was a uh, an actor and before mm -hmm. he was, well, when he was a boxer, he actually got his degree as a teacher. Mm -hmm. So it just like, not even 10 years ago, he decided that he would do a um, reality-based television show with him going back and being a teacher mm -hmm. and actually teach a class. Right. And mm -hmm. um, the season was eye-opening for him. And it was, a, it, was, it was one of those things you want to point people to because he thought, hey, everybody knows Tony Danza, who's the boss and taxi and all that kind of stuff. And he'd tell these kids all these stories and they would just be hit show back like cold, dead eyes. And then like... You're not teaching us anything. And then he mm. was like, they were the, the hardest audience for him to be. He couldn't entertain them. He couldn't sing to them. He stuff like that. So the whole idea of just entertaining them wasn't enough. He had to actually facilitate educational ways. And so mm -hmm. all the things that he thought that he could be able to utilize didn't work. And he broke down like into sobbing tears and didn't know what he could do. And you know, all those dark nights of the soul that teachers get, he had mm -hmm. to be able to see. So um, my point being is that popular culture, it, it, 
it has this double-edged sword when we're looking at how we're here to entertain people. And, you know, there was the the Samuel L. Jackson movie, which was really powerful. I forget what it was called. It was the name of a number. It was basically a, a, a murder number. And he basically, it's, it was written by a teacher. And he sits down with a kid and he's got a gun between the kid, him and the kid. And he's he's playing Russian roulette with his kid to try to get this kid to learn something. <laughs> And he says specifically, you know, it's like, I, I will do this so that you learn something out of this situation. I forget what it was, but it was it was really seriously, you know, messed up in that way. But again, how we perceive education, how we perceive teachers, how we perceive mm. the entire system is is something that's really complex and really mm. depends upon who the writer is and what they're trying to say. There's a lot of writers out there that had that bad teacher that they want to, you know, relitigate every bad <laughs> moment yeah. they had when they were kids. Um, and then of course, everybody thinks that because they've been in a school, they can teach. So therefore yeah. they have the ability to be able to tell teachers what to do. It's kind of like walking into the doctor's office and pushing the person aside, walking in the operating room, pushing the size. Like I can do this brain operation. I have a brain. Yep. <laughs> you know, it's a little different, right? <laughs> than than sitting there and and being taught as to being a teacher. But I I digress. No, hmm. no, that was a great digression actually cuz and you're all, you're 100% correct. Yeah. Uh everyone thinks they can teach until they actually try it and then they quickly discover, yeah, not for them. And there's another <laughs> little extra aspect of that that we English teachers sort of get frustrated because English teachers tend to be Sort of consider like, well, you can teach English, you can teach anything, or anybody can teach English. You know, it's mm -hmm. one of those things, right? Yep, yep. So, which is not true. We're specialists in what we do, mm -hmm. um, and unfortunately, we have this element where you know there could be students that you know we're doing it. Let's class novels are, are considered out right now, so we don't do class novels anymore. Um, but uh, I, some still do. I, I did up until recently, and um, because you can go deeper in a class novel than you can just having this stuff. But but the kids will say, well, I don't like that novel. And my, my department head put a great thing. He's like, do you ever go up to science class and say, well, you know, I don't like dissecting pigs. Mm -hmm. Well, you're not dissecting pigs because you like it. And you're not reading 1984 just because you're going to think it's the best book ever. Mm -hmm. You're reading mm -hmm. it because it's good literature. It's the same thing that we're doing. We're pinning this over here and pinning yep. this over here. And we're getting right into the guts of this particular story so you can see what literature is all about. Yep. So, but we've we've gotten to a point. It's like mm, I don't really. This isn't really connecting with me. I don't really like it. And and we we have forgotten that older aspect of, yeah, too bad. Find a way to connect, because you're gonna have to learn it anyway. Mm. It's not just about what makes you happy, mm. <laughs> right? So education actually, as the story goes, the more you learn, most likely the more miserable you become. Then aren't they the smart kids, though, then, that don't want to learn anything? Yeah. <laughs> well, no, no. They love learning, but they also recognize the more you know about the world. Mm. Like, if you just lived in a box and everything was handed to you and you know nothing out of that, you'd be pretty happy overall. Because if you know nothing about it, mm -hmm. then there's nothing that you're missing out. That's true. But the more you learn about the world and its complexities, the more uncomfortable the world becomes frederick Douglass mm. from the narratives of the slave narratives when i read that in university i don't know if you guys had read it but no. he's 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 one of the famous guys who um who uh, uh mark twain brought to the president 
Yes. And I'll never forget the one line that just like just caught me in the chest and just tore me apart was the worst thing that the that his slave owner did was to teach him to read. Because mm-hmm. once he knew how to read, he knew what he was missing out on and what he deserved. Right. And he could never be a slave again after that. So that's that's the power of education, right? Is it just it it tears open opportunities all around that have never been around but that doesn't mm-hmm. mean you'll be happy right very true yeah it doesn't necessarily mean happiness at all so i see your point i i totally see your point and i i agree often the more you know the less happy you are <laughs> well that and you could argue always that's... trying to up the show make people cheery <laughs> that's my job although <laughs> Interesting, you could argue that that's actually one of the reasons why academics tend to become hyper-specialized is mm-hmm. because they find that one little niche of knowledge that does bring them joy and right. they keep just focusing on that. Mm-hmm. Because after all, if I love Elizabethan history and I'm fascinated by it and I enjoy it, I can learn all I want about it and fill my head with it and everything and it's awesome and it doesn't mean that I have to worry about, you know, my knowledge of the terrible things that are happening in the world and man's inhumanity to man and all that stuff. It's all Elizabethan period. So it's all kind of a little bit distant and a little bit focused. And I don't have to worry about All I have to do is go to the Ren Fair every summer and I'm just thrilled. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And then that's one of the reasons why a lot of uh, academics are also evangelicals about their topic. Yes, absolutely. They think that their topic is the greatest topic in the world because it is the thing that brings them joy. Just like, for evangelicals, you know, God or Jesus brings them joy. Right. It's exactly mm-hmm. the same thing. They, a... they they think that, no, no, if you just understand the history of macroeconomics, you will truly become as happy as they are. That's right. That's right. And I have a friend of mine uh, who's an author, and she's a, an educator as well, and she's just, like, nuts about Jane Austen. So mm-hmm. she goes, like, every year there's a Jane Austen festival that happens in different parts of the world with, like, you know, Jane Austen's third cousin's uh, neighbor happened to be a uh, person in the military who came out of this small town in England. Let's go there. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, yeah. So that's, that's the kind of connections that they have. But then they all go and they sit and drink tea and, and, and read Jane Austen together. And they're just so happy. <laughs> well, and wow. that's the thing, right? And, but yeah. they're, and in the process though, they're hiding. It's a way mm-hmm. to, to get knowledge, but at the same time, stick your head in a, a hole like an ostrich, even though that's actually a myth, but whatever. And <laughs> they... Uh, it's a it's, metaphor. It saddens me to know that, but whatever. Anyway, <laughs> but you but you bury yourself in your one little niche, and then you ignore everything else. And that's your way of staying happy while staying kind of educated and still using your brain. I refuse mm-hmm. to say that Warner Brothers did not educate me with the ostrich thing. Wasn't it Warner Brothers that had the ostrich that constantly put his head in the in the in the ground there was like a, a cartoon that had that oh yeah i think it was yeah anyway sorry that was a little bit off i i didn't i i, I agree with you a hundred percent and again that's that's one of those things is like the more specialized we become as a society mm-hmm. the less connected we are right mm-hmm. so i've always wanted you know on my gravestone if i ever had one is i i would have loved to have had it say jack ward renaissance man because that's you know <laughs> i just wanted to be a jack of all trades i never wanted to be a specialist in any one thing 
Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But there are a lot of people out there that that's that society wants you to be a specialist because you're not connected to these other things. You can't make the connections about what's going on. You can only see your small side of the world. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, that and it's the idea that mm-hmm. it's what society needs. Like society doesn't care how curious you are about, you know, how the stars work unless you're an astrophysicist. Mm-hmm. And then it ties mm-hmm. into another thing that I've always wondered about is curiosity. Why is it that some people are curious and some aren't? Biochemistry. Is yeah, it biochemistry it be. or is it is it is it environmental? Like my parents are both teachers. I'm a curious person. I don't know mm-hmm. if they I would be as curious if they weren't there to sort of sit there and go, hey, what do you think about this? Because it's always a teaching moment, right? Even right, my right. sons who don't live with me anymore, they, one of them came over to talk to me about how he missed having deeper conversations that we would have and how I would always challenge him about one thing or another. And I would say something like, oh, you know, why is why is this side of the street wetter than the other side of the street? You can't see anything specific. And then he was like, mm-hmm. oh, I'll have to look that up. So there's a little bit of that kind of thing that goes on. That you, ha- It's a trained muscle. I don't think it's so much um, mm. genetics in the same way. But I could be wrong. Tell me, I, I tell me why a, you I, think it's biochemistry. I, I think it's a combination. I, I, I would agree with you on that. I think the brain is like a muscle in general. Like you can train it and the more you use it, the more you want to use it right like it, mm-hmm. you know it, it flex it you can flex it and such and i do agree a lot of it is um i, I think in it's one of those cases where i can almost go 50 50 where i mm-hmm. but i think that parents and how they influence their children determine a lot about how curious those kids are there's mm-hmm. no question on mm-hmm. that where they expose their kids to things but on the other hand i have seen many young people who were who have you know, very curious parents that have, that are the exact opposite, like that they want nothing to do with curiosity and education to them. That's boring crap. And they want nothing to do with it, even though Mm -hmm. their parents are both well-educated and very curious people. Like you, you look at someone who a curious person who has a couple kids, I will bet you at least one or two of those kids, even though they all were all raised in the same environment are not curious people. Sure. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, there is definitely a biochemical aspect to it. There's definitely a certain way of you just either were born with the right biochemistry that says, "Ooh, what about the world? And you, you literally enjoy learning about the world or it's something that literally causes you pain and annoyance and you want nothing to do with it. Yep. Yeah, I mean, no, I can think about my own family and I, 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 I utilize the uh, true colors, the Myers-Briggs test. A mm-hmm. lot with my students. I don't know if you guys know about that particular. There's like four different colors. Okay, refresher, and refresh. So there's there's four different colors, and my father did it with me years ago, and he and I are both the same. So, and I do it with my grade nine students. It's sort of a get to know you kind of first activity. Mm-hmm. So you, there's a bunch of different questions that you ask, and you show the pictures of the four colors, and you say which are you most like, which are you least like, and there's always some kids that go. Well, I'm like all of them. And it's like, yeah, we're all like a little bit of all of them, but who do you feel like today kind of thing? And they usually mm-hmm. tend to be a particular color, by the way. Right. So uh, <laughs> so the 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 gold color um, tends to be the, the largest percentage of society, especially adults. And so these are the people that are like the clock watchers and the and the people who have to have 
like if you go and sit down at the desk they have they have their own paper they have their own pencil if you just gave them seat work they'd be as happy as clams you know they don't want to be dramatic they don't want dramatic stuff they don't want all these bizarre stuff they just want they they're great with ledgers they're great with all that kind of stuff and as you get older you get golder for the most part right because we have <laughs> bills to pay and we have you know taxes to, to take care of and all those kind of things so you have to you have to be better so little things like gold people, if you had a gold girlfriend and you didn't show up on time for your date, she'd be furious, right? Because that shows respect in that respect. So then you, have, um, then you have the blue people, and these are tended people, people who are really concerned with areas of justice and, and fairness and stuff like that too. So mm. always when I have a blue person and I, and I sort of smile quietly to myself because I'll have a student put up their hands like, Mr. Ward... I don't really like taking this test because I don't think we should put people in specific boxes. And I'm thinking, yes, you're a blue person. <laughs> <You know? laughs> wow. So the irony is you don't want to be in boxes, but you're already put yourself in a box because you happen to be a blue. So there you go. Um, and and mm. these are great because these are the people that, you know, they, they, they like to meditate. They're about health. They're about making sure everybody has a free and equal thing. And uh, and uh, then you have the orange people, which tends to be the largest segment of teen population and stuff like that. And these are the adventurous kinds. These are the ones that go out and party all the time. These are the ones that are involved in a lot of sports. They hate sitting in desks for any length of time. They've actually very kinesthetic learners. If you put them on a stationary bike and they read a book while they were while they were biking, they'd get more from that. Than if they were than if they were just sitting in a desk. So mm. they always like they they like to change things up on a regular basis. They want to keep things really really uh, new. And so if you're dating somebody, as I tell you with students, you know, if you're dating somebody who's an orange and you're supposed to meet at a particular time and you have a surprise, they'll love it. The gold mm. people will hate it. The, the 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 orange people will love it, right? Mm. Um, and then the green, which is what students find out that I am. Uh, and those are the people who learning is the most important thing. Mm. And so th- we're the smallest percentage of society. We're also the only pr- only color that doesn't turn gold primarily as you get older. Because if once you lo- learn to love learning, you probably will remain as, as learning as your love all your life kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I tell students this. I say, okay, this is... I said, who who's freaked out? What color? I say to the orange people, who freaks you out the most? And they go, gold people. Because I said, no green people do and they go what do you mean and i said listen to this i don't do anything at all they go what do you mean i said no just let me finish i don't do anything at all without asking this first question what am i going to learn from this situation and then there's just like stunned silence i said i won't go to a party i won't go to anything unless i already have in my head that i'm going to get something from it i have to have some sort of value from it it could be that you know i haven't seen my buddies don and rob in a long time and i want to learn what's been going on in their life that's Mm. fine but i have to go with some sort of thing in my head as to what i'm going to get from that situation or i won't go and they're like why can't you just go and have fun and my response is that is fun for me Mm. that that is fun for a green person the more you can get them to learn stuff so then students i start to get them to think about well Figure out what your teachers are. So then students realize that if they want to get in my good graces, they come into the class and go, Mr. Ward, you'll never guess what I found out last night. And they'll come up with some sort of little tidbit of information, which is really uh-huh. neat. And I'm like, cool, that's really cool, right? And and so they start to understand who works well in that. And we have some fun little activities. One of my favorite is like, you guys get into your main groups and you have a million dollars and you can't split it up amongst each other. 
but you have to spend it as your group. And every single time, I swear to God, it's the same. The the orange people blow it on a party. Mm-hmm. Like one weekend, mm-hmm. alcohol, drugs, you know, uh, everything, you know, sports stuff. They just blow the entire money. The blue people, they donate it to mm. worthy causes, every single one of them. And they don't sit there and think, what would we do as this color? They think, what would we honestly do? The green people always spend it in some way to do with, like, learning. Some people said, oh, we, we, we would donate to, like, a third world country, but only to teach them better crop practices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or mm. we would go and uh, we would go to all the great, the seventh wonders of the world so we can learn about all of those, right? Or, or something like that, all those things. And then the gold people, 100%, they invest it. Yep. They find a way to invest it so that it's, so it's prepared for their future. So huh. it's fascinating when you can break down those kinds of, of learning styles in just really basic four methods and stuff like that. I'll send this stuff to you if you guys are interested. It's, it's Sure. It's yeah, very please cool. do. I'd be intrigued. It would be very interesting to read it. Yeah. Although it's disappointing that none of them said, I'd build a death ray. Like. <laughs> No, that's black, Don. That's black. (laughs) It's It's a very, very small segment. (laughs) We call those sociopaths. They're one out of 37 in society. (laughs) And so your class levels, you might have one of those. We've had a couple of those in my classes before. Exactly. Oh, sorry. That shouldn't be black. It should be purple. But anyway. Purple. Okay. Um, Give a little more color in your life. A little little more color in your life. Well, I'm thinking of Thanos, of course. Oh, yes. Oh, okay. There we go. There we go. We're bad nerds. We didn't get the purple there. There you go. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Wow, Jack, that was actually very education and very interesting. Um, (laughs) Obviously, you're green. There you go. (laughs) I I, I think it's fair safe to say that, okay, Dawn might be a purple, but I'm definitely a green. Um, Well, I said to people, hmm. I can usually pick out after talking to somebody their top two colors, right? Mm -hmm. So I can usually get an idea of what – and usually like – and and it's been helpful for me too because I remember when I first started utilizing it in my early school career and the Mm -hmm. principal had to come into my classroom. I sat down and I said, okay, knowing this guy, what are his top two colors? And finding out what I thought he was – I knew he was gold first and then green. So mm-hmm. I knew that if he was gold first, he would want to see my book of lesson plans. And I made sure they were all typed beautifully for the next month and a half. And they were put in little plastic sleeves and they were 12 <laughs> point, right? And the whole thing. And then I, and then because he was green, he would want to see my long-term plan. So I had mm-hmm. the entire, you know, segment set out for the entire semester, even the entire year and how I was going to build up stuff like that. All the other stuff, the dramatics that I could have done with the students and that, that would have been interesting, but it wouldn't have been his number one thing. Mm-hmm. Now, if I was, if I, he was an art teacher, instead of, you know, I might have had a, a, all my stuff handwritten, you know, and beautiful, like, illustrations on the side or something like that. The blue people would have loved that kind of, you know, that, that real human uh, touch to those kinds of things. But mm-hmm. uh, you really have to get an idea. And kids get into it because, you know, once they know, what those colors are, I have like I said a very, very small assignment where I say, um, your sentence is so and so is this color because and you have to pick three fa- family members, three friends that aren't in this class, and three teachers, not including me. And you have mm-hmm. to come back with those nine sentences and you have to be able to clearly understand why they would fit in that thing. So then suddenly they start they have better ways of knowing how to be able to negotiate relationship. Hmm. hmm. And you have a sneaky way of finding out uh, what the other teachers are. Yes. 
And I've, I've, I've done this with teachers too. It's funny because if you, I did a whole school once about it and I've sort of mentioned it to teachers now and they're not as interested, but it's, it's almost unerringly perfect. Like all the people who are in the business always are gold first. The people who are in the mm-hmm. sciences tend to be uh, green first. Mm-hmm. The people who are in the uh, guidance, absolutely blue. In fact, I had one teacher who was 50% phys ed, orange, and mm-hmm. 50% guidance, blue. And he came out exactly this, both at the top. They right. had exact same number, 50-50, all the way through. So, so, I mean, and if you were, if you were doing cosmetology, you'd be an orange person as well. If you were doing, you know, home at cooking, still orange people, all those kinds of things. Um, And yet it's, it's fascinating to see who fits in those particular areas and, and why. So. Huh. Huh. The idea is that there's four different kinds of people, basically. That's, it's just one way of, of serving it up. And by the way, as a writer, it works really well if you're writing a story. It's one of those mm. other ways to be able to, to polarize your characters. Why Absolutely. not use those four different colors definitively to polarize your characters in various different ways? Oh, absolutely, mm. yeah. Um, and if you have four characters, presumably they'd come into the four different groups and they'll have their natural conflicts with each other, everything. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah, mm. but I mean, I think you want to be careful because then you end up just doing the same thing over and over and over oh yeah you don't want to do the same thing for sure but i mean in polarizing there's so many different ways that you can polarize i mean guys you guys know about the whole the sanguine and the various different the four different ways of looking at uh characterization too from the different the different bloods or something like that like there's the bodily humors the the humors the bodily humors and you can actually take a look at like the beatles and the Ninja Turtles, and all of those, they fit with those kind of things. That's another way of polarizing characters. Another way mm-hmm. of polarizing characters is like, if you got three characters, you got head, heart, and spirit or something. And just, you, yeah. Can, yeah. you can take a look at them in various different ways. It only becomes a problem when it's the only way you look at things. That's right? true. So. Mm-hmm. Very true. Very true. Okay. Well, I think we've probably found a good spot to end on, actually. I think that uh, we've covered popular culture and education from a couple of different angles. We haven't exactly gone through it chronologically, but that's perfectly okay. We, we we just kind of poked around at it, and I think we did cover the a little bit a bit of how pop culture has shaped education, and education has shaped pop culture, and really that's what we want to do with this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I say as a green, of course, because I'm just all about learning. <laughs> <laughs> Power to the greens. Anyway, <laughs> that's right. Um, final thoughts, Don. Yeah, I think this is one of them things I think will come back later mm-hmm. on because this is sort of a specific example of things we've talked about before and it kind of sets the basis of things. Because again, it's that example of how education is portrayed mm-hmm. represents what's going on in the real world and what people's hopes, fears, and expectations in real life mm-hmm. are. And then how that filters how they see. Because, it, yeah, it's it's that idea, like, when you look at, like, teachers, they can be the hero or the villain. Mm-hmm. And you find that comes in groups. Because if people don't trust the system, people, like, society's changing really rapidly and people aren't sure what the future holds, then teachers are seen as bad. Whereas if everybody's kind of fat and happy and got a pretty good idea of how life is going, teachers are good because they perpetuate mm-hmm. the That's system. That's true. They're agents of stabilization. So that makes sense, yeah. 
And then the other thing I find weird is listening to you guys. Holy smokes. Nobody punched out teachers or went drinking with the students and that. Your, your grade schools were really <laughs> different from mine. <laughs> oh, I wish you were joking. Anyway. Um, <laughs> okay. And final thoughts, Jack? I'll give you the last uh, word as oh, a teacher. That, that's that's it's always a dangerous thing. Teachers make the worst students in some cases. You ever <laughs> notice that? Like you get a bunch of teachers in a classroom and they always want to stand up and take over the place. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of nervous because I'm I'm going I'm heading back to my mas- I'm to do my masters finally after all this oh, time. Okay. For that very particular reason, I'm very concerned that I may make a poor student. So I need a better inoculation, as we talked about. I need I need to be infected <laughs> with more uh, opportunity to be to change, which I think in the end that's what it comes down to is oh, oh, willingness to grow willingness to change willingness to learn oh okay jack here i can help you with this no problem okay sit down shut up okay problem solved <laughs> all right thanks folks for listening hopefully uh, we haven't brought back some um you know, traumatic memories of bad teachers but maybe we have brought back some memories of some good teachers that you had that you now look back on and feel bad about how you treated them so badly <laughs> who knows in any case, no. no, not really. Okay, fine. In any case, <laughs> thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the show, found it interesting. If you want to leave comments or check out the show notes, drop by obeythedna.com and um, we'll have everything there for you to check out, including our past shows. Also, feel free to check out our YouTube channel, the Department of Nerdly Affairs, and you can find all our past shows there and some other things as well. So on that note, thanks for listening. See you next time. Good night. Night. Do your homework. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to hear more or join the conversation, come visit us at obeythedna.com. You can also find us on iTunes or whatever fine podcast site forgot to lock their back door. So until next time, remember... That to master the nerdly arts takes time, practice, and enough Coca-Cola to drop a rhino. See ya!